Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley talking to you on episode 142 of Criterion Reflections, uh, season five. We are in 1973, and this is actually the second episode of season five, although that first one was kind of a cheat because I kind of recycled some old material for the podcast uh, you know, episode or installment, if you will, of the series. Um, and so I want to just take a minute as we kind of get this thing rolling in a slightly new configuration. Criterion Reflections has been going on as a project. I started back in 2008 as a blog. In 2009, I started this chronological sequence where I'm just going through every Criterion film in the order that it was originally released. And here we are in the year 1973, and I plan to just kind of keep plugging away at it, but I'm going to sort of put a little bit more emphasis on short-form videos that are posted on YouTube with the occasional podcast update, and this is one of those occasional podcast episodes, where I will do a more in-depth coverage with typically with one or two guests uh, where I talk about a film that really seems to warrant a more extended discussion. But the primary... Uh, like I say, the primary emphasis or vehicle for season five is going to be the short YouTube videos, which is basically me speaking with some visual supplements off to the side while I'm talking to the camera. But today we're going to talk about Lucino Visconti's Ludwig, a 1973 film released early in that year um, in kind of a butchered, compromised uh, drastically edited format from the original four-plus-hour vision that he had filmed and, and had in mind for what really is kind of a, a, I would say, one of his defining epics, even though it wasn't really known in that form for quite a while and has been relatively hard to find up until maybe a few years ago when the Arrow Academy line uh, sadly gone the way, even though Arrow Video is still around, but the Arrow Academy line was kind of their prestige label and they kind of pulled the plug on that a few years ago but they did release this beautiful four disc blu-ray dvd dual format box set edition a nice sturdy case and i'm here to talk about that film with my friend brad mcdermott brad welcome to the podcast nice to be talking to you again yeah, great to be talking to you again about this film, David. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's always a pleasure. I always really enjoy your insights, and especially when we get into the arts and the kind of more refined aesthetics. Uh, Brad McDermott, he's, oh, you're, yeah. on, you're on my short list of go-tos. For... That's that's my wheelhouse, David, absolutely. Yep. Well, for sure. Now, have, have we discussed Visconti? I know we've done a lot of Pasolini, and I know I did Death in Venice a while back, but I, I can't recall, honestly, if you were on that episode or not. No, I wasn't on the Death in Venice. This nope. is this is my first one. Did you do the Damned yet, or no? no? Well, well, that one had not been released by Criterion gotcha. when I was in like 1969 or whenever. I think that was a 69 movie, so I kind of passed that. And I really had full intentions of re- of watching the Damned because it is this is film. This Ludwig is kind of the end of an informal trilogy mm-hmm. uh, that started with The Damned, went through Death in Venice, and of course uh, kind of culminates in Ludwig. So in the trilogy, it kind of works backwards in time. The Damned is set in the 1930s, 
as kind of the Third Reich and Nazi Germany are kind of coming into power. And then Death in Venice is a little bit after the turn of the century, I believe in the early 1900s, maybe the 1910s. And then with Ludwig, we're back in the 1860s to 1880s. And they're all sort of end of an era type of films, you know, right? So, right. Yeah. So, so kind of maybe just give me a little bit of your opening take on this phase of Visconti's career and maybe your, your kind of overall connections or impressions of Visconti as a filmmaker. Um, I, I like, I love his German trilogy a lot. And, um, I know that they're, they're maybe not considered sort of like the big tentpole Visconti's, but I, I don't, I don't know. I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think that there is such a, a varied and lush kind of storytelling in these films that he hasn't really tackled before there's maybe some similarities between some of the stuff in Ludwig and in the leopard like I can Mm -hmm. see those but like death in Venice is a very much like a mood piece um it's very much uh you're in its zone and you're you're feeling its music and its visuals and like less of a sort of plot driving death in Venice forward right Mm -hmm. and and the damned is sort of his I mean, I'm going to say sallow, even though I know that word's really loaded, but it is very much yeah. like he's putting his thumb in your eyes as the viewer and implicating you. And it's just a very, it's a very angry film. And he had never really done anything like that before. And it, damn, just kind of like, where did this come from? Where is um, Visconti's sort of lusciousness? Though it is lush, but in, in, in its visuals, but mm-hmm. like... It's not a gentle movie, um, and it's not a uh, romantic movie. So I, I think that I, I just think that his trilogy here is really important, and I'm really kind of happy that uh, we get to talk about Ludwig. We get to shine some light on this one, and the, the, this release that you mentioned, like that was my draw first time watching it was from the Arrow release, right? I'm just a you know, a Visconti, I love Visconti, um, so I just grab whatever comes out, right? Um, and then I watched this maybe like a year ago, a year and a half ago, just sort of on a whim, like pulling it off my shelf and like, oh, I should give this a shot. And I, I love it. It's it's such a great, great epic. It, it is really quite a spectacular production. I mean, and, and even the critics who maybe have derogatory things to say about it will give it all kinds of props for its aesthetics, you know, the, the right. set pieces, the interiors. I mean, Gino Visconti um, was, you know, as I think a lot of listeners probably know, uh, but maybe some don't. He was a true blue-blooded, old-school aristocrat. He he came mm-hmm. from a very well-connected family, had a lot of access to not only wealth and and privilege, but also just the 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 the, the spheres, the circles that he traveled in. He he would walk into palaces and and you know the these kind of elite settings uh, with full comfort and assurance that he belongs there. He, he's not like climbing beyond his station in life. In fact. This was kind of his bread and butter, you know, ordinary world that he was very accustomed to. And yeah. I think we can all be very thankful that he was one of these, you know, very uh, connected, privileged aristocrats who took us into that world as kind of a casual, let me show you how it is living at this level, rather than, 
you know, maybe an outsider who finally climbs the ladder and has access to these, you know, luscious interiors, there's almost a casualness to all the pomp and ceremony and elegance that Visconti just kind of like, oh yeah, <laughs> and and then they, here's this castle, oh yeah, and there's this palace, you know, and here's these chambers that no no tourist can get into, but I've got free access to. So, you know, he he's very familiar with with all of the ritual, the ceremony. And, and the pressures that come from having that that privilege and opportunity because there is obligation when you're living in in that kind of realm and and I think this this film does have sort of a reputation as a bit autobiographical obviously it's not Visconti telling his personal life story but it's a character that he closely can identify with and and sympathize with because their struggles were were very similar even though they lived 100 years apart from each other and and there's also another element of him as well as that his his marxist leanings right yeah. especially mm-hmm. in the early part of his career which made him sort of this walking contradiction because as you said he was very comfortable in these high social spheres and as i think his films are great because they make that very accessible um Mm -hmm. like they you know like you said we don't have to actually do the work uh, to get to climb these social ladders um he through just his uh cinema um you know pulls the curtain aside and lets us in but his marxist um ideas kind of were there especially you can see in the earlier films like you know russell and his brothers um were a lot of sympathy for the working class Mm -hmm. the lower class and also his feeling that i I would think that it's a feeling that even though he is with this upper crust and always has been that there's something off about him that there's something about him that he feels is different than everyone else um and I think that that is probably, you know, the gateway into the Marxism, into mm-hmm. thinking of the world and thinking of its, uh, you know, conditions and poverty and, uh, you know, uh, labor, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, right. He, he's very aware of the fact that he lives in a comfort and a splendor that ordinary people don't have access to and is the absolute opposite of so many people's experience where you know their next meal or if they were to have some kind of you know crisis of illness or accident or loss of a job you know their whole world would just crumble you know they're they're just living on the the you know the the end of a thread there that if it's snapped you know they don't really have any kind of safety net or backup and so Visconti has this awareness of the fact of this fundamental injustice and recognizes that, you know, just because he was born into all of this prestige, power, privilege, etc., he didn't necessarily deserve it and neither do his peers. It's just sort of a, mm-hmm. an accident or circumstance of history that things turned out this way and, you know, he he doesn't have the power himself to overturn the entire aristocratic old wealth and all that. But he can give his voice to, you know, pleading for justice and also for recognizing that even within, you know, the trappings of all that wealth um, and and, um, opportunity, you know, there there are hardships um, and deprivations that that people like him have had to experience. So he doesn't really embrace his aristocracy without a sense of, you know, ironic detachment. He never abandoned it either. He didn't just come completely abdicate and live a life of simple poverty. You know, he he still enjoyed his creature comforts and yes. made sure that his <laughs> films really 
reflected all all of that world. You know, I mean, I, uh, another film that you know I think really relates and informs this one is a very early work of his called Senso. And when I I remember doing a podcast about that years ago with Scott and I on Criterion Cast, and I think there might have been another guest or two. But you know, Visconti's attention to detail is so thorough that in the furnishings he made sure that there was authentic objects of the period inside the drawers of the cabinets, yes. you know, <laughs> rather than just a, a, a surface. He, he wanted that world fully inhabited with all the stuff that would have been there back in the, you know, 1850s or whatever the time period he was filming in, even I if, think, even if it never got on camera. Go ahead. Yeah. I think they say something in the, the special features of the leopard, like the underclothes of all of the, the costumes is authentic, even though it, you, you never get, any any you know frame of it in the film <laughs> but he just wanted to know it was there that yes. you know, and then the yes. actors themselves were really immersed in that You're in that movie wearing well. it. Yeah, exactly yeah. Yeah. so brad you want to give us just kind of a little summary tell us what is ludwig about um you know, you know introduce sure. us to the character and and what basically happens over the course of this four plus hour epic so uh, Ludwig is um, uh, based on an actual real guy. He was uh, the king of Bavaria, um, and he reigned in the end of the 1800s. Um, and this was around the time of when northern Germany was being united, right? So King Wilhelm I and then the the first chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, they were all in the north. And, of course, all these people are related. Um, and uh, to the east is Austria and um, uh, Countess... Uh, is it Queen Elizabeth, a Countess Elizabeth? Empress, I think. Is Empress right. Elizabeth. Yeah, right. Oh, my. <laughs> well, upper, upper. Right? <laughs> yes. Um, and she is reigning in Austria. And again, she's also his cousin. So Bavaria was, at this time, its own country. And it was waging a little wars against Prussia. Yeah. And um, Munich and, was the capital. If you're looking at what, where is Bavaria yeah. situated, there's kind of the Munich side of Germany, right? Yeah. Munich is the south, right? So Bavaria is southern Germany and uh, Munich is its capital. You're right. And so uh, he uh, came to, uh, he was coronated when he was 19. Um, and so. And somewhat the, unexpectedly, right? I think his father passed away kind of abruptly and yes, he wasn't really thinking so. about, I'm about to become the king. It was just like, here you are. Put the ermine robe on, and, and here here you go. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Ludwig kind of chronicles uh, over the, the 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 movie or miniseries, depending on how you watch it. Mm-hmm. I'm, we'll get into that. Um, uh, chronicles uh, sort of is it the thirty years of his reign from the time he's coronated to his death. Yeah, I think it was um, just short of thirty years, maybe like yeah. six, 1862 to eighteen eighty eight. I mean, I could be off by a year or two, but that's basically the range there, somewhere. In there. Right, mm-hmm. right. And and in this reign, there are sort of several ten poles that uh, the film covers. So one, I mentioned his relationship with his cousin, the Empress, um, which is sort of a, a, a tempestuous relationship uh, that goes back and forth. Uh, she's a very much a strong willed. Uh, woman and which is uh is it atypical of those times i would think she's very independent very uh strong-minded 
Um, and he's very drawn to that. Yeah, a female monarch, I think, was still pretty exceptional and unusual. And for her, yes. and she was apparently regarded as kind of one of the great beauties of Europe. And I'm sure with all of her, you know, care and attendance and, and wardrobe and everything else that really enhanced her features. But I've seen like paintings of her. Yeah, she was a very attractive woman. Um, so she certainly had a power and a charisma to her that made her a pretty unique individual. Right, right. Definitely. Um, and so he is he's drawn to that. Um, and other things he is drawn to is uh, Richard Wagner. So the famous um, composer of many like legendary operas um, uh, from uh, from Bavaria, from the Munich area. Um, so the film chronicles his uh, relationship with Wagner and how he uh, is Wagner's benefactor, Wagner himself is sort of in over his head with debts and is engaging in a sort of scandalous love affair with the wife of his um, uh, lead orchestra composer. Conductor. Uh, yeah. Conductor, right. So Wagner is the writer. So I do, yeah, yeah. And then the lead conductor, his, the affair with the lead conductor's wife, that's kind of like agreed upon, kind of like hushed, not really talked about. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the conductor is kind of a cuckolded, you know, yes. gentleman. He's he's just going to maintain the peace so that he can kind of keep his cushy little position in life there. Right, right. And um, the third thing that drives him is architecture. So his desire to build enormous, beautiful palaces and castles in Bavaria to really emulate um, what, what he was seeing in France, right? Mm. So he wanted to have that luxury on display here in, in Bavaria. So these are kind of the, there's other little things, but these are the kind of the three huge um, aspects of Ludwig Luke's life that the film kind of chronicles. And over the course of the years, he goes mad. So a lot of this has to do with um, sort of a family, mental health. A lot of this has to also do with his repressed homosexuality, which the film goes into great length to show. Um, and a lot of this also has to do with his sort of apathy with the government and its affairs and his sort of desire to bury himself in art as much as possible. And that was the only thing that really mattered to him. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think bringing yeah. art to the people as well. He wasn't just yes. wanting to gorge on it himself, but to create a sort of a, a, an aesthetically refined culture that would bring delight and happiness to the common people. I mean, you don't hear him say it in those terms and you really don't see you know, the everyday German, you know, proletariat working class folks enjoying these things. Maybe he's a kind of detached from all of that, but apparently he was a popular figure. He was, he was beloved because he wasn't political. He wasn't a warlord. He wasn't, you know, uh, a guy who was just out there to, you know, move and shake power for its own sake. He, he, right. he had this vision of life. And I think that's what the film is, is trying to convey. And the, the film shows, so scattered throughout this film are interviews. They're like testimonials from like servants and pages and people and bureaucrats, that... Bureaucrats, government bureaucrats, officials. Right. right. People that were lower in standing had to interact with Ludwig on some level. And a number of them talk about how his influence, like what his influence was doing. So, you know, early on in Ludwig's reign, Wagner was a little out of it and uh, had to be shooed away from Munich. And he was unpopular, even though he'd done Tristan, Tristan and Isilda and 
Lohengrin. Um, but Ludwig was so believed so much in Wagner's brilliance that he funded, uh, personally funded from the government's money, so like taxpayers' money, uh, Ludwig's uh, new opera house and also the Ring Cycle, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. the the Ring Cycle was enormous and super popular. So again, Ludwig became popular because the people had liked the Ring Cycle so much that, okay, now we like Ludwig. And the same with the the castles. He had dedicated himself to building these things, but the people liked them so much that he became popular. And that's sort of the struggle that the film also has as it moves through is that he's spending all of the government's money and the government doesn't like this. Um, So they're trying to usurp him. They're trying to find some way to dethrone him. But the problem is, is he's so popular that it has to be done in a very like secretive clandestine kind of way. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one of the um, film central conflicts as it sort of moves into its latter chapters is how what are we going to do with this mad king <laughs> yeah i mean there there really is a palace coup is what's what what happens is at mm-hmm. the end you know they've realized he's just become out of control and you know part of that is uh specifically and and indisputably his apathy towards the affairs of state you know and and that's it's kind of epitomized in this war where i think austria versus prussia uh or austria versus france i mean he, he kind of chooses to oppose involvement in the war. He does not want Bavarian soldiers getting involved in these kind of, you know, destructive, calamitous affairs. Um, but he's, he, as a monarch, he, he has a lot of power, but he doesn't have absolute power. And because right. of diplomacy and, you know, treaties and agreements and strategic vision, you know, the Bavarian power structure cannot just sort of sit this one out. And so Ludwig is kind of abdicates, you know, all of his responsibility. He he can't stop the war from happening. He can't stop Bavaria's involvement, but he can just sort of, you know, distance himself from it all. And so while, you know, that may be a, a, an act of principle or conscience on his part, it it's also seen by the people in close proximity to him as as weakness or as abandonment of his responsibilities and i think that's the the gert frobe character the you know you of course he's goldfinger in the james bond movie <laughs> uh, but but he you know he comes back here and he's kind of an elderly almost like a pastor or an advisor he's kind of the voice of duty and responsibility in this film and and so he kind of pops up every so often to sort of say now Ludwig here's what you're supposed to do you know yes this Wagner character he is a spendthrift and he's mocking you behind his back and you better be careful about your you're giving him your un you know unqualified endorsement and of course Ludwig is like no can't you see Wagner's brilliance I mean yes he 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 may do these things or those but what he's capturing in his music and his power that's that's eternal that's immortal that's beyond all of the you know mucky affairs of of who's sleeping with whom or any of that type of business and so you know to me and maybe it's because I do have this uh, sympathy towards these people who do sort of cast their vision towards that that kind of higher aesthetic or that that more refined sensibility i find ludwig a, a, a sympathetic character although ultimately very tragic because you know as so often is the case you know he just wasn't made for these times you know I'm, yeah i'm right there with you too like that's exactly what draws me towards him is because he is looking at this much higher bigger picture of 
importance Mm -hmm. that is not something that everyone around him can see. They're all just, you know, not seeing the influence and the, the legacy that that this will lead right yeah. and it's it's importance in bavarian history it's importance in german history as, well, as bavaria became unified i mean the, the um, german tourist industry today these castles yeah. are huge draws and wagner's operas and bayreuth and, and all of that are are you know they're massive cultural contributions that yes. will be remembered centuries from now uh because they are pretty special right yeah that's the irony is that ludwig was right you know, there's there's you know mucky stuff like Wagner is not exactly the greatest person in the world totally, but like the influence the Wagner cannot be uh, undisputed, right? His blo- he made the blockbuster opera with the Ring Cycle, and that influence of the blockbuster can be carried on even into the early thing in the early days of cinema was that feel. Um, and also the castles are famous, you know, Walt Disney's Sleeping Beauty's castle mm-hmm. in, in Orlando is like the Nussteinstadt, Nussteinschloss. And they're just, it's just legendary. That's a huge tourist draw, as you said, uh, for people to coming to the area. And a lot of what's become known as German identity has been from, is from the South and from those, those influences of, uh, uh, from those things that Ludwig himself um, started, right? Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the character development. I mean, Ludwig is played by Helmut Berger. Is it Berger or Berger? I, I can't. I think it's Berger. Berger. Okay. Well, so so Helmut Berger, and it really is quite a phenomenal performance. I, I really feel like he is is quite exceptional because. This actor, over the course of six months, really, you really feel like he ages about twenty yes. years yes. plus. You know, <laughs> uh, when he is coronated, you know, when he has that opening and that opening ceremony, which is basically there's there's a little bit of a prologue preamble, but then the like the first fifteen minutes of the film are just uh, you know young. Uh, newly crowned and anointed King Ludwig sort of taking his place among the royalty there. And it's all the pomp and circumstance, all the guests being greeted. It's very deliberate, very extended. Maybe in a more conventional movie, this business could have been taken care of in like five minutes, you know, but (laughs) Visconti really takes you through the whole pageantry. And, uh, but he, he really does. He looks like a a teenage boy, you know, just a guy kind of coming into his own. And he, he, does successively age as he goes through you know what you might call the ordeal of kingship you know as, mm-hmm. as the as the authority and responsibility rests on him i mean he certainly has access to great wealth and and it is important to even his from the historical record to indicate that from what i understand all of these funds that were spent on wagner and these castles that was ludwig's personal uh, share of the fortune he was not just draining the whole government savings to build these follies, even though, you know, and and his funding was done through what you might call taxpayer money using today's parlance. Uh, But, you know, he, he was, you know, taking what his allotment was and spending it on, on this stuff. So he, he was in a way investing in the future for a long-term dividend, but you, you see him going through this, but as he's, sort of thrust into this role of the authority. He's like, okay, well, you're giving me all this power, all this opportunity to sort of, you know, 
make my royal decrees. Well, here's how I'm going to do that. And yet, you know, intruding on his exercise of, of all that privilege is the sense that you've got to be responsible. You've got to marry a woman. You've got to produce an heir. Right. You've got to take on the duties when it's time to go to war. You're supposed to be out there cheering everybody on and whipping the public into a frenzy and saying all the right words to our young men who are about to go out there and die. You know, <laughs> he's like, I want nothing to do with that, you know? So it's, it's kind of overcoming the, the obligations and, and the repression that, that he has to deal with as an individual, as a human being, but with his desires, with his vision for what he wants uh, his life to be, what he wants his influence over society to be. And all these people sort of standing in his way saying, no, you can't do that. And, you know, from a sort of common everyday person's perspective, yeah, even if you're a king, you still got to do what you're responsible to do. You're, you're not this little, you know, privileged prince who can just kind of do whatever without without consequences, without the sense of commitment to others. But at the same time, I feel like, well, you know what, he really, he was on a certain track that if uh, some of the um, people around him in those upper levels of, of power had been a little bit more enlightened, maybe they could have supported that. And maybe there was more mm -hmm. of that. I mean, obviously, we, we could dig into the history and, and all of that. But, but really what you see is Ludwig in the film having to overcome almost continual opposition from one way or another uh, as he pursues what he really wants. Uh, so, yeah, tell me just a little bit more about your, your impressions about how Ludwig is responding to the pressures around him. I mean, he's he's got an artist's temperament. Like, that's how I would describe it. Even though he himself is not really an artist, right? He's more that he's financially supporting art, Mm -hmm. um, but he has an artist temperament where he is. I understand that. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be caught up in like the day to day stuff that I have to do to support myself. It's like, I just want to bury myself in my art and right, like, right. and, and, you know, great art is made that way. It seems irresponsible. It is irresponsible, but great art is made that way by just having people bury themselves in their passions and deliver something exceptional at the end of it. So that's what I I always feel when I watch this movie is that Ludwig is such a reflection of how I feel about that and, mm -hmm. and that like that struggle where it's like you just see this brilliant thing right up ahead of you and no one else can see it and like if I just ignore everything else I can get there I can get there yeah. um, and it came in at a cost but he you know did eventually get there even though you know its legacy is only really known after after he's passed away you know a long after yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a patron of the arts. So it's ultimately kind of his role. But right. he realizes, hey, I've got all this wealth. I could really prop up Wagner. Uh, he is a spendthrift. He is a scoundrel, a scalawag, you know, uh, yeah, an uncouth riffraff of a sort in terms of how he lives his personal life. But boy, he, he can create music and he has ideas about staging and lighting and, you know, presentation and the whole spectacular bombast of it all. Yes. And, and without the support that he needs, the world will be deprived of, of what he's able to realize. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it is, it is a bargain. You know, it is a, it is a calculated, uh, you know, exchange, um, that, that he decides, yeah, I'm going to go for it so that this incredible stuff can happen. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and, I, um, I just want, if we can branch into, sure. uh, 
uh, Ludwig's like life. Uh, yeah. Ludwig's kind of, uh, yes, Wagner is sort of a, a, a bit um, rough yeah. character, but then Ludwig himself becomes a bit of a rough character with sure. um, his many love affairs and and passions. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. And I was, that's where I was going to go as well. So let's start with his his uh, infatuation, his obsession, if you will, with the Empress Elizabeth, uh, played by Romy Schneider, who absolutely nails it. She is yes. just so so great. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, Romy Schneider is just pretty awesome all the way around. Absolutely. Wow. She, I mean, and and in a way you say she was born for this role. She had actually played the Empress Elizabeth as like an ingenue, a teenager earlier in her career uh, in a series of films. I guess Cece was kind of her nickname. And Mm -hmm. that's the first film is called Cece. And I think there were a couple sequels after that. And so Romy Schneider, who had sort of established herself as a star at a, at a pretty young age, uh, was persuaded to resume her role. I think at first she was reluctant to do so, but then she saw the script and understood Visconti's vision and says, I can do that. I can bring that. And she delivers. I mean, she she has that, that beauty, that elegance, that kind of, I'm going to do things my way. I mean, she really right. is an independent, powerful woman um, and realizes she's got a very <laughs> unique opportunity herself. And so, she she gets Ludwig, but she does not want to become subservient to him. And so even though he's very seriously, um, you know, trying to trying to appeal to her to say, you're the one woman I can love. Um, maybe she realized yeah, that he really would not love her in the way that she needed to be loved. And maybe she was not interested in that. I, you know, I don't know anything about her inner character, but what, what you get here is that she sort of sees through him. She, she knows him in some ways, maybe better than he knows himself and realizes that it would not be a happy union for either of them. And because she's kind of unattainable, I think that sort of drives his <laughs> pursuit even further. Yeah, because she's she's the only one that um, yeah she sees through him. I think he's pretty transparent for almost everyone, but mm-hmm. she's the only she's the only one who sort of accepts that this is what it is, and we need to deal with this. Whereas mm-hmm. everyone else, like his mother and the oh, priest, yeah. <laughs> they all are like, "There's something up with little Ludwig," and like, "Yes, okay." <laughs> well, let's just hook him up with this actress hooker, and that'll yes. straighten him out, right? That'll take I'll take care of it, and. And uh, like, and Elizabeth is the one who is like, no, like, I, I know what this is, and everyone else is deluding, delusioning, or uh, um, uh, making themselves believe that he's going to, uh, you know, it's just a phase, like, right, that kind right, of, right, right, right. Um, this film because is everything very... is about producing an heir. I mean, that, exactly. that that is the that is the gold standard. You have to have a boy. You know, whatever it takes, get a boy, and then you can do whatever you want to do after that. <laughs> Exactly. And I think I think the Empress knows that Ludwig is attracted to him because of how strong she is. Um, one, she like her position as well. Um, if if she was getting married, right, then that mm. would shift the power that she has. But also like like she knows Ludwig's gay like that. Right. I think that's the thing. And, and she's like, I'm, I, I and this film is coded with these sort of ideas that in i mean we all have with gay male culture is looking up to very strong powerful uh sexual women that were independent and this is like a long history of if you want to go to you know Greta Garbo and Marlena Dietrich sure. and Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and like 
all Rita the, Hayworth, the whole, you know, the, the whole, whole Vogue lineup that Madonna threw out there exactly. years ago. Right, right. Exactly. Like then then this is the kind of way that Ludwig views um, the countess. But like in this 1800s. Right. I can see with uh, so much sexual repression happening, you're confusing that with love. Right. You're confusing that with a sexual love when it's not. It's just this does uh, this this like this grand appreciation. Yeah. And admiration. Speech. That was the word that came to my mind. Right. Right. Yeah. For for like a powerful woman. Right. A strong, powerful, mm-hmm. independent woman. Um, so that's kind of like. Yeah, that's their relationship. And it's really interesting for me to just see how Ludwig always kind of confuses that for romance and for for passion. When I don't think Ludwig doesn't feel that passion, but he doesn't really know what he's feeling. Right. He he doesn't feel that strongly drawn to any other woman because nobody else is quite in the same position that Empress Elizabeth is in. Right. But it is interesting that she kind of wants to foist him off on her younger sister, yes. Sophie. Yes, Sophie. <laughs> so, and Sophie is not that, right? No. Sophie's very quiet and very timid and demure. demure and right. right. Which she, is, yeah. she was <laughs> raised to be that. She was raised to exactly. be a subservient escort or, you know, kind of the, the royal, you know, accompaniment to whoever, whatever majestic male would, would take her on. And of course, Ludwig would be the prime catch. I mean, there's no higher ranking eligible bachelors out there than Ludwig. So when Ludwig, you know, kind of goes through the, the breaking point, he realizes he cannot get with Elizabeth you know, all the pressure is coming in down on him to sort of make this decision. Okay, damn it. I'm just going to go ahead and marry Sophie. I'll propose to her. You know, it's basically like, let's just get this nonsense over with, you know? Yes. And, and so of course he kind of reluctantly gets dragged into this commitment and, and everybody's euphoric. Oh, finally, finally Ludwig has come to his senses, you know, and Sophie is ecstatic because this is her girlhood dream come true. She's going to marry Prince Charming, right? And, and have his baby and fulfill her purpose in life. <laughs> and everyone is just like lying to themselves. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Like uh, Elizabeth doesn't have any capacity to lie to herself. She just, that's not something she knows. She where, doesn't need to. She, she's yeah. got all the power and she can deal with life the way she sees it and not have to concede anything. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly yeah, right. Right. Yeah. So, so, but, but, you know, the engagement to Sophie is eventually broken off. I think, I think in the cinematic cut, the engagement is there at the end of part one, but then soon broken off at the beginning of part two. Go ahead and correct me if I'm wrong, viewers or listeners. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, he never does actually consume, consummate the marriage, and it's kind of heartbreaking for, for Sophie, and you do feel for her. I mean, she didn't really do anything to deserve this or bring this on. And and yet that is kind of almost also sort of the breaking point in a way in which Ludwig begins his decline, because now he's really broken etiquette you know he's, he's announced an engagement and now he's reneged and all of a sudden the the powers that be are like okay this is kind of getting out of control over here what are we going to do about this troublesome monarch over here who is like you said beloved by the people but he's just not carrying out his obligations and that's where you start to sort of get the sense of, of sort of conspiratorial maneuvers happening in the background while Ludwig basically just 
sort of gives in and says, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. Right. And that's where, you know, he creates the, the kind of the, the Linderhof palace and, uh, you know, starts, he, he kind of, I don't know, he has a, I guess, almost like a coming out experience, maybe not coming out in a public way, but he realizes and that's that, that nighttime scene where he leaves the castle. You know, he's the what the 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 prince of moonlight or something like that, or yeah, you know, the midnight lover. So he he likes to take these solitary walks under the light of the moon. You know, gather his thoughts and just kind of try to make sense of it all. And while he's out there, he sees a young soldier who is just going for a midnight swim. Strips down, yes. runs out into the lake. And there's a little bit of an awakening. You want to walk us through that that moment, that part of the film, Brad? Oh, definitely. Um, so Ludwig is uh, watching him and peering behind a bunch of bushes and sort of leering <clears throat> and just gazing on this soldier's body, basically, as he's skinny dipping in, in the lake. Um, eventually, Ludwig comes uh, out from the bushes and the soldier is... Um, you know, super embarrassed and thinks he's going to be in trouble. And he's like, I didn't think that, you know, you needed me anymore kind of thing. Yeah, he's supposed um, to be standing guard in the palace just kind right. of doing his routine duties there, right? But Ludwig is not going to punish this man. And I think that his beauty um, really sort of calms whatever edge that Ludwig would have had if this was somebody else um and in fact he gives the the soldier his coat because he says you look cold um so he takes his big cloak <laughs> yeah the off. soldier's like naked standing at attention <laughs> like yes. what do i do next yeah what's what's yeah. the right uh parliamentary maneuver <laughs> and uh, yeah. but there's it's such interesting i love this scene because there's just the looks that Helmut Berger gives as to like should I be looking? Should I not be looking? Should I be looking? Should yeah. I not be looking? Like, there's this edge that he gives because, like, he wants to look. This is what he is attracted to uh, sexually, very much so. But because of the times, because of his standing, and because of a, a number of ish of, of things, societal things, um, you shouldn't. So you can just see that struggle play out um, back and forth in this scene. And this is sort of the beginning of the film's uh, examination on his homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and f- uh, from if, if it's okay if I keep going, yeah, from, the, yeah. from that soldier, it, uh, he then brings him into the castle, uh, lets him stay the night, um, and they have this great scene where there's a confession. Um, it's an intercut scene. So this is the, his mother is, being, is converting to Catholicism, Kind of um, real old school, very, you know, ceremonial Catholicism, all the rituals, all of that. Yeah. Right. And is it that her that has to give the confession or is it Ludwig? I can't remember. Um, it's some Someone's giving a confession. I can't, but it cross cuts mm-hmm. with him kissing the the page, right? The soldier mm-hmm. in this, and he's in this great lounge chair in front of the fireplace. And just the the uh, you know the that cross cutting is the irony, right? The contrast of being a de- devout Catholic to having homosexual affairs, and it's just why uh, Visconti is just so brilliant because he just does this stuff so great. Um, mm-hmm. And from there uh, leads to another affair with a actor. So there was an actor who played Romeo, um, mm-hmm. and is it um, Deroy? Deroy? Uh, Kynes, I think, was the the actor's name, something like that, the historic figure. Or, right. Uh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the uh, the characters he played was Romeo, but you're right. You're right. right. That's the name of the actor. Right. But um, so Ludwig, uh, you know, is smitten by this actor and by the performance specifically. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's yeah. the key point. Yes, um, <laughs> and invites him again to come stay at um, is it Friedhof? One Lind- of the- Linderhof, I think is Lind- that's the Linderhof. one with the, the clamshell boat and the swans right. and all that. The right, Venus right, Grotto. Right. Right. right yeah. Right. Yeah. So at that palace, but again, um, because Ludwig is losing his mind over these frustrations, um, he's not really interested in who these men are as people, but um, the characters that they play, the fantasy, right? Right. Um, and that's that's very typical, I think, for sexual repression is. You're not given sort of the the time and investment to know who a person is as a person, um, because you you're you need little secret snippets of this this experience um, that you can't let people see, right? So the fantasy is always what you're going to grab. You're never going to be interested in what it's like. Who are they? Who are they really like? What are the what are the like more blase things that humans mm-hmm. do, right? Mm-hmm. And so. He wants this actor to, you know, recite uh, the great lines of Shakespeare and almost be like in makeup and costume and and really create the illusion that he fell in love with on stage. Exactly. Bring that into my everyday life. I want you to be my Romeo. (laughs) Yes. But then he goes on a tour of Europe with this guy. He's going to wine and dine him. Um, But whenever this guy is like sleeping and snoring which people do um he is he is like disgusted and not interested and it becomes frustrating right you can't just be uh, a performance 24 7 all the time right um and the actor himself kind of reaches his breaking point and and it starts to become apparent that you know he's along for the ride i mean this is as lucrative of a gig as he's ever going to get with money with good times with all the fineries of life he's kind of milking it you know and i think at yes. a certain point ludwig realizes you know i'm kind of being taken for a ride here but but you're right it's that fantasy element you know uh, a guy who just kind of wants to have he wants to live in this kind of perpetual euphoric dream yes <laughs> rather exactly. rather than just the sweaty ordinary muckety muck reality of of or you know, everyday life and and we get that euphoric dream shortly after and one of my favorite sequences in this whole mini series is just this. It's so beautiful. It's it's charged. It's very erotic, uh, and um, just uh, just gorgeous. Is that there's a shack um, just outside um, that castle with the Venus Grotto. I can't mm-hmm. remember the name that you mentioned. Linderhof. Um, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of shacks on the ground, various little buildings uh, on the grounds around the castle. And one of them is this sort of like fest hall, beer hall, um, and there is a artificial tree built in the middle of it. Um, so this actually exists. I looked it up, and that is a, a artificial tree. It's supposed to represent the tree that Siegfried pulls the sword out of from Wagner's Ring Cycle. That's all uh, uh, in there, um, and it's the scene is Ludwig. In this in this beer hall with like all of these guys and they're in <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're all in very like German uh, southern Bavarian attire so you've got the lederhosen and the suspenders and all of that um, and then some and, who are not wearing anything at all <laughs> yes and some are in various states of undress 
and it's sort of very, um, very much, and he sort of grabs one that he's attracted to, pulls him to the side to this kind of room that's a little, still kind of open, and they kind of cuddle. Um, we don't see anything really explicit. It's all very implied what's happening. Right. Um, but later, um, Ludwig uh, awakens and come and sort of comes out of this room and back into the great hall where the tree is. And uh, Visconti had just arranges all of these gorgeous men um, in various, like you said, various states of undress. Some of them are completely naked. But the idea is that they're all passed out. Maybe they're tired. Maybe they've had lots of sex. Maybe they're just very drunk. It's all left up to us to interpret what exactly sexually was going on here. But I think it's very much... They just had a rousing choral sing-along, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> very much uh, I, the idea is that they had a very good gay time. Right. Um, and I just think that this sequence is beautiful, just as a piece of homoeroticism, where he has, like, the naked... Uh, men up in the top uh, branches of the tree there's just such a very beautiful vision of um it, like innocence there's a kind of you know adam and eve thing going on here as they're draped through the tree and then you pan down from this tree to everyone sort of scattered around on the floor um as visconti sort of drifts through them and then out the door into the night i think it's is it day or night i can't remember. i think it's a night scene yeah 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 <clears throat> and I, I I just remember like some of the 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 interviews and stuff that you sent before we do this podcast mm-hmm. where people said like at the time this scene was very laughed at and yes this film was like cut to pieces and and very much different cuts so I'm not sure the context as to actually how people would see this scene but I just feel like if this scene was presented to gay critics gay male critics um it would have a very much different response to other critics where they might have seen this as something as very ridiculous. This is something that's actually very beautiful. And I feel is the Visconti allowing himself to enjoy his own homosexuality, which is very rare because Visconti didn't do that. He was very much um, self, uh, you know, internalized homophobia. He very much did not like his own homosexuality, which is, you know, a different idea that we have, you know, in the post sort of Stonewall period, right, right of right. Um, how, you know, gay LGBT communities should see their sexuality and gender, right? Should yeah. be, um, you know, loving themselves, self-love. That was not Visconti's thing, even though this was after that time. This was in the 70s. Um, and, you know, you have to wonder just but how much of modern culture would affect yeah. someone of Visconti because he was so rich that he could just be... Insular, right? Yeah, you know. Again, I'm I'm a straight male, so I I don't know this from the inside out, but but it feels like he kind of maybe regarded this as kind of his dirty little secret or his yes. his indulgence Definitely. that that was kind of, you know, I mean, it was what it was, but maybe he even regarded it as a form of weakness or depravity, if you want to use that word or whatever. So, but at this here he is saying it is what it is here here yes. i am here are here are the scenes that that bring me a certain sense of fulfillment and i'm sharing this with my audience and and i think the film was you know and i think visconti was recognized as sort of at the front edge of openly expressed homosexuality at that time outside of like the the porno circuit or something right. like that yeah. you know he was doing this with a an aesthetic artistically refined sensibility and 
somewhat insulated or protected by the aristocracy and the wealth um, where because I, I feel like even people who are maybe uh, progressive or accepting affirming to a certain extent still saw homosexuality as a form of decadence you know mm-hmm. kind of like you know we're, we're not going to persecute you we're not going to hate you or judge you but you know you're kind of giving in to that that side of yourself you know when you maybe should be a little bit more self-controlled or whatever I, and i think that's probably maybe where you know the, the critics were still figuring out how, how to deal with this and and to be openly affirming that was a pretty small range on the spectrum of, of how to respond to scenes like that at the time. Right. Yeah, it's, I completely agree with you. Because um, there's no really any, like, where would they know otherwise, right? Like, we hadn't really come that far yet. Well, I mean, so it was just, still criminal yeah. in, uh, behavior or, yeah. or you know, uh, immoral, you know, th- that kind of thing was still pretty much the prevailing view. So, you know, if if you were you know, openly homosexual, you were indulging in that. You were showing, I'm not going to be restricted by all of these moral considerations. I'm just going to do my thing, you know, which right. is kind of a, a 60s, early 70s ethos. Um, of mm-hmm. And and this this carries through, this is all through the German trilogy, right? So this is in Death in Venice as well. Um, and this, this is in The Damned as well. Mm-hmm. These... And you kind of feel like Visconti being um, really hard on these characters, you know, like the damned has this big Nazi orgy and it's all gay orgy. And that's a very, that's a statement, right? Like he's really making a statement as to what... They they go hand in hand with each other. Exactly, exactly, right? (laughs) Where in reality, they did not at all. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) So so we kind of go go to the end of that cycle. And I mean, and and again, the the coding, if you will, or the presentation of the film, as Visconti, or as, as Ludwig is going further down this path, you see the the physical wear and tear. His teeth are rotten. His eyes right. are red rimmed. His his cheeks are gaunt, and you know he's wasting away. So again, a, a conventional you know, you know connect the dots here. You know the more you do of that, the, this is how it's going to bear itself out in your physical appearance. You're, and you're, even yeah. even in the way that Visconti shoots. So the last segments to take place largely in Neuschwein Schloss Castle. Um, and there's incredible, like, low lighting. So very, yeah, like, high-key lighting where there's so many certain things in this castle that are illuminated. It's very, very dark. So, again, that's reflecting... Yeah, you're almost like a Dracula territory. You say it's a very Dracula <laughs> castle kind of feel to it. Um, there's a great shot, too, when he's, like, coming down the stairs... Um, and there's like this huge gargoyle head that's just like in frame, <laughs> yep. like close to the camera. I just love it. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, again, this is this is Visconti's just brilliance as a filmmaker because you know he's very in control. Every scene, whether it's brightly lit, showing all of the the gilt, you know, refinements and candlesticks and you know, you know, draperies and and art on the walls, or if it is, everything's in murky shadow and you know, heavy and oppressive. I mean, he's he's taking you through all these different moods and, mm-hmm. and executing it just with, with brilliance and assurance. And it's also important to say that Visconti himself was going through some pretty significant health problems. He had a stroke towards the end of production that, you know, really kind of put a, 
damper on what he was able to do the rest of his career, but he did overcome those obstacles to, to finish off this movie. And so I guess maybe just to return to the the plot line of the story before we get into the fate of the film itself is, you know, at this point, Ludwig is, is pretty well, you know, pursuing his own his own muse and, and vision. And now it's, it's to the point where the, the, you know, the, the principalities, the, 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 the other heads of government are like, okay, we've got to, we've got to get a handle on this guy. And so they, they put together a scheme to have him declared mad, insane. And, you know, I, I can't help but think about, you know, the politics of our own times where, you know, influential figures are, are demonized or portrayed in such a way as to sort of disqualify and discredit them um, by this kind of negative public relations campaign. And so, yeah, this idea that Ludwig is the mad king of Bavaria is kind of a, 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 a tarnished on his reputation that lasted for over a hundred years after he died. I mean, that, that phrase, the mad King of Bavaria was used in the marketing of this film. It's like right there on the posters. Uh, like he was like this raving lunatic, crazy man who happened to be King. And, you know, that is a trope in itself. You know, the, the, the untouchable aristocrat, you know, the, the, the royalty who is, you know, just running amok in the palace and making ridiculous, insane decisions is kind of a, a popular legend. You know, we have the madness of King George and, and all right. of that. But but here, you know, he, he really is kind of ousted by people who recognize he's not under their control. He's not playing the traditional part. And so we've got to find a way to, to delegitimize him. And and in the face of all of his public popularity, they have him declared insane, and so they kind of surround his castle. He buys a little bit of time. He's got his guards who are loyal to him, but it's a it's a moment of pretty intense drama until finally they break through his resistance and manage to get him, you know, into custody, if you will. Until he takes this fateful midnight walk, he he earns a little bit of trust with the with the doctor. And uh, and this is all based on historic fact. It's not exactly clear or proven what may have happened, but uh, Ludwig and his doctor were both found dead uh, in in a lake nearby uh, late at night, and and that basically brings the, this tragic story to its conclusion. So, you know, Visconti was staying you know pretty close to the historic record as far as the major events uh, how much liberty he took with the characterizations and the dialogues and some of the you know more fine details you know i i certainly have not done my homework to 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 rigorously challenge any of what's portrayed on screen but even from sort of an operatic or theatrical presentation to me it's just a very powerful story about a guy who you know, found that this world was was not really hospitable to to his own vision, and so he just he took the exit. You know, I'm not really advocating suicide here, but I recognize that that may have been the decision that he felt needed to be made, rather than living the rest of his life under house arrest or possibly even being I don't know executed. They probably wouldn't have done that, but he just did not want to live on those terms, and so there you go. Yeah, because they, they take him from from uh, Nishwan's castle to Bird Castle, mm-hmm. um, and then they they put him in this sort of uh, a little apartment that is very 
blah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, all of the trappings that he's become, I mean, he, he's lived within almost from birth are, are taken gone. away. Right, right. Yeah. And I think they allude to something that, because he's so popular, like, they just want him to be this sort of empty figurehead, but not actually make any of the key decisions. Yeah, come out and so, wave to the crowd every so often, you know, yeah. it, it will be good, yeah. <laughs> so Exactly. So that kind of... And I and I think for him that might be a fate worse than death because oh, yeah. he has no uh, access to the art that he loves so much. Right, he's a total uh, puppet, a figurehead, it's just yeah. an empty vessel. You know that that's not acceptable to him, right? There's no other artists whose brilliance he can elevate and support um, that he himself uh, can see and understand this grand vision. He has no access to any of that anymore. So Wagner has passed away. Um, all of this, uh, and uh, his his um, his cousin, the Empress, uh, is no longer uh, in, is no longer in his circle. There's a great scene I have to mention before we wrap that yeah. just like when she she does the grand tour of all his castles and and just how lavish and but empty they all are, and she just cackles with laughter. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's a great montage. Yeah, absolutely yeah. great. Um, but yeah, there's nothing else for him and. Um, so this seems like the only out for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's still kind of debated as to whether it was a murder, whether he committed suicide. Um, the, the series does, and the movie does really sort of point to a murder suicide that he killed the doctor so that he could kill himself. Um, but I think that this is still sort of a big question mark. Yeah. 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 And it's just one of those, you know, historic mysteries that will probably never be resolved and i'm sure yeah. the experts have looked into it and you can probably get into the literature and try to figure out what really happened to king ludwig you know the second but uh like i say for the sake of the story i think the, the character arc kind of completes his journey and we are left with this you know four plus hour magnificent piece of work that you know only uh, well beyond visconti's passing and the original issuance of the film is it available to finally be appreciated? And I think you, know, you mentioned, Brad, the, the miniseries or the theatrical. I mean, the the Arrow Academy presentation, it's on Blu-ray and DVD, does break it up into five TV episodes. And I kind of feel like that might be the ideal. Verse. This is kind of like uh, sort of a, a prototype of an extended TV cut, a miniseries. Because I feel like even the way the episodes are broken up, they're not like of uniform length, but they're they're broken up at sort of critical junctures where the story right. advances from one stage to the other. So some might be like 48 minutes, some might be 55 or 56 minutes. So they're kind of, you know, looking at the right time to sort of break off and, and draw that chapter to a close. I, I think it makes the film a lot more digestible because you could really, uh, you know, isolate the different stages of Ludwig's journey and you're not, you know, bolted to your seat in the theater for four and a half hours with an intermission in between, which is a lot to take in. And I feel like that even in the defense of those perhaps who cut it down in its original release, down to about you know three hours or a little under you know for a four-hour movie which you know this would not have been the first movie to, to to get that length but you need to have like lawrence of arabia style splendors of of outdoor action sequences and battles and you know epic sweep and and this film has a lot of interior beauty there there's a lot of 
eye-popping, gorgeous visuals there. But it doesn't have, you know, you'd think, well, when, when the uh, Bavarians and the Austrians, you know, go into conflict, let's have some battle scenes. No, this is this movie is called Ludwig. It's it's about him, you know. It's it's his. It's focused on his story, not his era. It's, this isn't Napoleon or something like that. Um, he's he's the guy who's kind of living his life. So it is a it is a lot to ask for viewers for mass audiences to sort of sit down and say here's here's four hours of movie where it's a lot of dialogue uh, you know when you and if you watch the blu-ray dvd presentation if you watch it with the english language even even if if you know it's advertised as english every so often it's going to cut to the italian because some parts of those 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 dialogues were not translated into English. They they may have been filmed in English. You can see the actors' lips speaking in English because that's that was the original language. That a lot of this was performed in, but it was never released for an English you know distribution. And so you see a lot of what is cut if you watch it that way are where the characters go into greater depth about you know, their motivations or their ideas. And so you take that away, I feel like you're kind of taking a lot of the heart and soul of the movie out of it. And then you just have all this, you know, pr- you know, this palatial elegance of characters, you know, pompously marching from one point to another and showing off the, you know, the, 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 the interiors and the costumes. And it becomes a little bit more of a pageant rather than, uh, a, a real human drama that happens to take place in this very elaborate setting. Yeah, I I think that this film, because um, it's interesting the way that Visconti shoots this as opposed to something earlier like The Leopard. Like, this is a very much a chamber piece through mm-hmm. and through. Yeah. And what we would normally say is a chamber piece. And there are there are sequences in it, like of, of editorial sequence flourishes, but there isn't these sort of grand um, scenes the way like the leopard has the battle scene. Right, but then there's exactly. also there's also when, you know, the Don makes his big political trip and then, Or the ballroom dance, you know, and, which and is a I beautiful would say the, the big famous extended ballroom dance mm-hmm. that climaxes the whole mm-hmm. thing and all the people and all the situations that that surround that. Right. Those are very cinematic um uh, the ideas that that Visconti can sink his teeth into to make, even though the lot of the leopard is inside his estate, to make those great big cinematic scenes. Right. Whereas the Ludwig is a lot of small scenes because I think that, like, as a king, you know, he would be re- just stuck inside of these beautiful rooms. He's for kind most of cloistered, of right? Right. Clo- and there are key things that that Visconti chooses not to show. Like we are not sent to the premiere of Tristan and Isolde, right? Or, or or the Ring Cycle. We are not sent to the front lines of the battle against Prussia. And I think that's a very deliberate choice. Uh, maybe cost wise, yes, but yeah. also again, Visconti makes that as part of the Ludwig experience. He himself would probably never be there. Yeah. So. He is, we are stuck with him, contained inside these beautiful rooms. Yes, yeah, staging a battle scene is one thing, but they could have easily staged at least a portion of a Wagner opera. You know, they could have yeah. definitely put that up on stage and given us a nice five, ten minute, you know, elaborate sequence. Visconti certainly would have had that within his budget and powers, to, but he didn't want to take us there, right? Right, exactly. And I think the TV edit also... Um, gives us those testimonies that yeah. sort of mm-hmm. frame the whole thing, yes. um, which which is kind of nice because it's sort of the makes the whole miniseries feel as if 
like these are you know uh entries in some sort of investigation into ludwig's life and someone's doing some big interview session right and we're we're learning about him through everybody's opinions about him yeah yeah yeah. after the fact after ludwig is dead and gone we're going to have an inquiry to get all of the people who say what what happened right (laughs) you know what what led to this tragic outcome because i'm sure even well obviously the 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 people who had Ludwig uh, confined and and under wraps did not intend for the story to end this way and so in that way that you could say this is Ludwig's final revenge on his captors you know that you're you're trying to force me into this box um, yes I am the king but I have my obligations yeah you've told me about that but I'm just not going to finally give in even if it costs me everything right right yeah. So yeah, so the film did get butchered down. Uh, all the there's a if you go to the show notes page on CriterionCast.com, you'll see a bunch of reviews that I got from 1973. I think almost uniformly negative because uh, I, I think there are a couple things. One, obviously, they're seeing an inferior version of the film. I think Visconti may have been at this point a little bit out of step with the times even though he was still a big name i think films like the damned and death in venice as well as some of the earlier art house stuff like the leopard and rocco and his brothers you know visconti was right there in the upper echelon with guys like fellini and pasolini as far as italian directors but even the whole wider you know european art house scene visconti was seen as a pretty major player but as often happens in the critical kind of back and forth, you know, well, we're going to take this guy down a peg. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. think that's, that's kind of what happened here is that he, he kind of was seen as maybe a little bit big for his britches or, you know, and, and it, you think of early 70s, you know, regal pomp and splendor is not really the vibe of the times, right? Right. And so Visconti was being true to himself and his heritage, but he was at this point a pretty elderly man. And like so many of his other films, you know, looking back on the end of, of eras where this kind of lavishness was was more the ordinary. And, and, you know, in the early 70s, all of that old wealth was kind of receiving a lot of scorn or dismissal. Like, you know, you, you pigs don't deserve this, you know. <laughs> Power to the people, man, to redistribute the wealth. You know, and Visconti's there doing his aristocratic thing and just maybe a little bit out of step with where popular tastes were at. So, you know, it's a it's a movie that has, you know, all a lot of amazing visual stuff going on, and uh, perhaps that's what the editors were trying to whittle it down was just kind of give you a bunch of eye candy but it does become somewhat incoherent if you take all of those dialogues out of it and like i say just have the characters proceeding from one elegant setting to another and i mean ludwig is he was a bohemian that was his whole (laughs) thing like if you remove all of that stuff then you don't really get that feeling that and and you don't get that idea that he was sort of right there kind of with that idea of you know art above all else um you know apathy towards uh you know political wars and like he says all all of my family members just trying to fight each other all the time you know yeah Yeah. (laughs) all right right so you know we can all be thankful that arrow put out this pretty comprehensive edition i mean there's a nice you and i both have the now out of print version which is the two jewel cases the thick sturdy box but it is still available and and i think now it's just available a blu-ray only double disc edition so you're basically getting blu-rays one and two from this set 
I don't know that it has the thick booklet. It's probably got some version of those essays in there, but maybe edited down a little bit to be a, more of a pamphlet rather than the bound booklet that we have in the deluxe version. So if you are interested in uh, in watching it, it is still available on Arrow, not Arrow Academy, but just an Arrow DVD or Arrow Blu-ray, excuse me. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I didn't really cover this at the beginning, but this film has been featured on the Criterion channel. I think the last time it was shown there was part of a Romy Schneider bundle, actually. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really a Visconti package, but I think they have shown it uh, with other Visconti retrospectives in the past. And so, you know, there's a decent chance that it'll come back to the channel one of these days, years, whatever that might be, because it really is. I mean, Visconti is is clearly a preferred choice by the Criterion Collection, and they will probably continue to feature his films here and there, but it's still the property of Arrow as far as, uh, you know, home video distribution is concerned. I highly recommend it. I think this, if you're into Visconti's aesthetic and, and, and or just great European cinema of the of the 1970s or of that kind of latter 20th century this is this is a really exceptional film in my opinion not everybody may may dig it as much uh, as you and i do brad but uh you know my recommendation is to give it a shot even if that's looking for it on streaming somewhere before you make the commitment to put a copy on your shelf yeah i right there with you and i think this is an extraordinary rescue of a film that was really maligned um and hopefully it will help uh with its reputation not only as um you know a part of visconti's uh, oeuvre but also like you said you know great european great epic cinema of the 70s yeah 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 definitely be thankful that that arrow got all the elements together i mean it really is i mean they even have like some alternate english tracks that seem to have been recorded for a cut of the film that doesn't survive any longer so mm-hmm. it's, it's a it's quite a piece of restoration work even if you want to look at it from sort of a technical like you said brad a rescue level um you know this film was pretty close to being lost in obscurity or seen as kind of like the outlier of Visconti's filmography. I think at this point, you have to look at this as like an essential, crucial work because it is so close to his own story. Yeah. And and it is. It's, it's a very long, extended look at a very unique chapter of European history. So, yeah, all around uh, strong, positive stuff. Agreed. All right. Well, listeners, we're going to wrap up this episode. Let me tell you what I've got coming up next, okay? So for uh, Season 5.3, we're going to be talking about Fernando DeLeo's The Boss, which is an Italian crime thriller. So for the third episode, I'm yet another Italian (laughs) director here. And not only um, am I recognizing, okay, so we're staying in Italy here to get 1973 started, but as I looked into it, The Boss is actually the third part of a trilogy, which starts with Caliber 9, and then the second film is called The Italian Connection. So Damn it! I gotta watch three more movies because <laughs> I, mean, I, I can't do a podcast about the third part of a trilogy without watching the first two, right? I'm not gonna do exactly. full episodes on each film. I'm gonna kind of watch parts one and two, and I'll do a video kind of summarizing maybe the series, but with most of the emphasis on the boss, which was again released in January of 1973. And if I'm exceptionally impressed by the, the trilogy, maybe I'll do a podcast about it. Uh, 
call Richard Doyle. I think he'd be up for that kind of a, a conversation. <laughs> uh, or I might just keep it to the video. So I haven't watched any of them yet. Uh, those were films that were released on the Criterion channel as well. Um, and I think they are currently in a Kino Lorber box set of Fernando DeLeo films. He was like a pretty prolific crime action director. Have you ever seen any of his stuff, Brad? No, I haven't. Okay. I okay. haven't. It's new. No, so it, they, look, they look pretty cool. I mean, the trailer itself is pretty like, Oh, this is like, you know, rock'em, sock'em, you know, guns, explosions, glamorous criminals, you know, suspense. I all like that all those things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it looks like it should be a fun watch, and I'll uh, give you my impressions of it next time I get around to updating uh, the series here. So thanks for listening. Brad, before we wrap things up, any, any little updates? I know we always kind of check in on your burgeoning art career and gallery exhibits and whatnot, but uh, how are things going for you as we get 2024 rolling? We're now a month into it as we here on February 3rd doing the recording today. Yeah, good. I'm, so I'm still at school at the Academy of Realist Art here in Toronto. Um, it's just working away, trying to get um, the pieces finished, sort of graduate as you move through the school. So I'm hard at work at that, um, and I have a great big piece uh, that I'm going to spend the majority of 2024 working on um, uh, for uh, my gallery that's, that represents me, Maison, Maison de Poivre. Um, so I'm hoping to get that done uh, this year. It's going to take all of my time. So Wow. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. I mean, you're, you're kind of going for the, you know, the... the uh the magnum opus there i guess you know i mean exactly i mean you know i, I just said uh, like ludwig would would i have to make ludwig proud right it's just what he would <laughs> want right. so he's smiling <laughs> down on you there exactly <laughs> all right well it's been a great time we're talking with you this morning so thanks for your insights and uh and your advocacy and just you know just just being you brad a lot of no lot problem of okay thanks so much david thanks for again listeners we'll be coming back at you real soon but for now bye-bye Bye.